This podcast contains mature content, violence, and coarse language. It is intended for entertainment purposes only. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hi, my name is Madison, and you are listening to Who's Knocking, a true crime podcast. Welcome. Um, A couple of things I wanted to say before the start of this episode. First, excuse me, I'll be doing this episode this week. I will be doing another episode next week, and then I will be taking a two-week vacation. Uh, Me and Aiden are going to take a little break. I have not stopped doing this podcast since we began, so I'm pretty excited. Um, It's mostly because my kids are going to be off of school, so literally will not be able to record or do much of much. Um, But I'm also going to hopefully use that time to work on a couple little projects to do with this podcast and with my newsletter grim weekly which you can sign up for at grimweekly.com it is a little true crime newsletter that comes into your inboxes on friday mornings um so just wanted to say that i hope everybody has a great christmas holiday or whatever other holiday you celebrate at this time um so there's that also Okay, this, sorry, but I just, I just, I I have to. So, there's a new documentary series on Peacock. What is it about, you ask? Fucking Casey Anthony. And of course, everybody on the Twitter and everywhere else has been talking about it and saying, you know, we don't want to support this, we shouldn't watch it, etc, etc, etc. And I get that. I don't necessarily disagree with it. But... Your girl has put in many a hour, probably multiple days worth of my life in total, knee deep in this case. I have listened to hours and hours and hours of podcasts going into excruciating detail into what happened here, who we think was responsible, etc. I have watched a lot of the trial, which can be found on YouTube. I have google notifications for whenever this woman does anything that we can find on the internet i cannot let a documentary series where she attempts to explain herself be made and produced in this world and not watch it i'm sorry but i'm just being honest i could sit here and say no you shouldn't watch it blah 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 and then behind everyone's backs go and watch it which i'm sure a lot of people are doing if they're being honest but no Obviously, I watched it. I am in Canada, so I couldn't just, you know, I had to do a couple of things and I actually got some help from uh, one of our subscribers, thank you, um, to acquire it. I did not pay for it. I'll just say that. But on that, I'm just, you know, I would, I I never want to tell you guys what to do. Like, I'm not, I, I hate when people are try to tell other people what to do like we're adults here make your own decisions if you don't want to support something don't support it but you don't need to be on your high horse about it okay and i'll just say casey anthony sat there and she lied for three episodes i don't know if there's a fourth episode but i watched three episodes it kind of ended weirdly so i feel like there might be a fourth i'm not sure I 
it is my humble opinion for, and I'm not an expert on anything. My opinion means nothing in the grand scheme of things, but it is my opinion that Casey Anthony is responsible for Kaylee Anthony's death. I further tend to veer towards the belief that she did so intentionally. And I'm not going to get into everything because, you know, that's its own episode. If that's what the people want, I will surely give it to them. But that documentary series, they really do their best to try to convince people that Casey Anthony is not responsible. And that, in fact, George Anthony is responsible for Kaylee's death. And it is so unconvincing. Oh, my God. If you if you did any real research into that case whatsoever, if you really looked into the evidence in any meaningful way, I don't buy a second of it. It's very, she alleges that her father raped her her whole life, which that, who knows, it, it's, it's impossible to say whether or not that's true. Um, but I think it's absolutely irrelevant to the question of whether or not she killed her daughter. And it, if that is the case, horrible, but it is not an excuse to kill a three-year-old child. Um, furthermore, furthermore, I don't know what I have to say furthermore. I, if anybody really wants me to go in detail, I certainly can. If you are, would like to hear, to, to dig into this case more thoroughly, I definitely suggest, um, Crime Weekly. So Stephanie Harlow, who's like, on youtube and she has a podcast you probably know if you're here you probably know who she is um but she did a i think somewhere something like eight part uh series on her podcast called crime weekly that is um, a great amount of detail i listened to all that um the prosecutors podcast i listened to them and they did i think maybe it was seven parts or eight parts or whatever and i i recently listened to that again after watching the documentary, just to just to really go over it. And uh, yeah, I, I suggest that one as well. There's probably way more. And if anybody else has suggestions, I would love to hear them in the comments. Um, yeah, that just, that was upsetting. And, and a big reason too, uh, why I feel that it's, you know, maybe a good idea to watch her documentary, even though I do think she's absolutely making money off it. And that's something that you should definitely be aware of going into it. A big reason that I, sorry, not a reason, I would have watched it anyway, I'll be honest, but something that really made me look further into trying to find it, because I was having a hard time finding it. I'm in Canada and I was like, oh, maybe I just can't see it. But then somebody on social media that I know personally and somebody in real life said that they saw it and were like oh like I didn't that you know it was kind of convincing I wonder if she did kill her daughter and that made me super curious because I'm like is she being convincing and no 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 if anything these people I think there's a lot of people who who didn't spend weeks of their lives looking into this case understandably I guess I guess I'm in the minority there um who can be convinced by this type of thing who can be convinced by Casey's arguments and mind you also like the only people left in her life I guess are her defense team who kind of like took her in the most shocking thing one of the defense attorneys took her in to his home and like brought her into his family and hired her to be his research assistant um, because she had no money, she had nowhere to go, whatever. It was a good thing for him to do. 
And he just like, they, all of them just believe that she's innocent of it. And have never asked her what happened. Took her into his family and never asked her what happened. Never. And he said that on camera. It just grinds my gears, you guys. So anyway, I won't I won't go any further because that's I have a lot to say on the matter, but that's that's all all I'll get into today. Thoughts and opinions appreciated. Am I an asshole for watching it? Whatever. Okay. So this week we're talking about a different case. And this is very interesting. It's an unsolved, very likely serial killer case. Um, and this is generally called the West Mesa Bone Collector. Um, so let's get into it. So our story takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, and just before I continue, I love doing something that I really like about doing all these different cases that take place all over America and Canada and different cities and et cetera, et cetera. It really helps me learn how to spell the names of all these places. Like I've already, I've always known about Albuquerque. Um, and like I've, you know, I'm aware of it and how to pronounce it, but now I know how to spell it without even looking A-L-B-U-Q-U-E-R-Q-U-E, Albuquerque. Okay. I never would have been able to spell that before had I not had to spell it constantly. Hopefully I spelled that right. That would be so embarrassing if I didn't. Are you from Albuquerque? Did I spell it right? There's no spell check line under it. So hopefully that's right. Anyway, the story takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now Albuquerque, from my research, is a pretty generally suburban area of the city. Um, it is located in like a very desert, arid area of New Mexico. Albuquerque has a very high crime rate in the context of the United States. Um, in 2021, there were 15,000 violent crimes reported in a population of just over 560,000 people. So in, in comparison to the rest of the states, that's a pretty high rate of crime and especially in this area that we're talking about um this is a lot of subdivisions and this area was pretty greatly impacted by the 2008 um housing crash situation that we all know about um generally what was going on at the time was like big developers would buy plots of land and then build subdivisions and so like you get a subdivision here and one popping up here one popping up here and often they'd be surrounded by um areas with nothing i don't know if you've ever seen arrested development but like that's the kind of thing we're talking about they're just like big plot of land with nothing on it um and especially during the time where the housing market crashed there was a lot of people who were going to build subdivisions but for financial reasons they were not able to or um they were behind on things etc cetera, etc cetera. so you you had a lot of um planned subdivisions that never got built or took their sweet time being built whatever so that's the backdrop of, of where we're seeing this so it was february 2nd 2009 when Christine Ross was walking her dog in West Albuquerque on an undeveloped area near 
118th Street Southwest. The land was owned by a land developer at the time, but they had not built. They had been on the land, and apparently they had, like, mixed up the dirt quite a bit. Um, and, like, I don't know what they had done, like, but they had they had gotten involved in the dirt, but they had not built anything. Um, so Christine was walking, and she saw what she thought looked like a human bone. And so she took a photo of that bone and she sent it to her sister who was working as a nurse at the time um, to ask her what she thought if it seemed like a human bone to her. And her sister texted back and said, yes, absolutely, that is a human femur bone. So Christine did what any good civilian would do and she called the police. Little did Christy know that this chance discovery would lead to what is suspected to be the gravesite of a serial killer, the biggest in Albuquerque's history. So, after the investigators came and took over the scene as a crime scene, they started digging and they unearthed body after body after body. And actually, really, body part after body part after body part because everything was completely scattered. Um, they unearthed, in total, 11 bodies over 92 acres. And these were all skeletal remains. All of them had clearly been there for a long time. Um... And I think that this is unclear to me, but I believe that all this scattering is not because the the bodies were thrown in piece at a time, but because um, the land developer had mixed things around and gotten, and I know they had like turned the soil or whatever. Um, and that, um, I believe, is what scattered all the remains. Now, the victims were all identified and they were found to be 22-year-old Monica Candelera, 26-year-old Victoria Chavez, 24-year-old Virginia Cloven, 32-year-old Cinnamon Elks, 24-year-old Doreen Marquez, 24-year-old Julie Nito, 28-year-old Veronica Romero, 15-year-old Selenia Edwards, 15-year-old Jamie Barella, and her cousin, 27-year-old Evelyn Salazar, and 22-year-old Gina Michelle Valdez. Now, Gina Michelle Valdez as well was found to be four months pregnant at the time of her death. So on top of that, we also have the death of a four-month-old fetus. Now, because the bodies were so far into decomposition, there was no DNA evidence, none. The coroner couldn't even identify their cause of death. All she could determine was that they were absolutely murdered and she called it homicidal violence. Now, there are a lot of people who speculate and I don't know where the evidence actually comes from, but that it's probable that most of them were strangled. And I don't know what from where they determined that. I would, if, if I were, to, if, if somebody just said, oh, a bunch of female bodies were found in a dump site, I would as well think this was strangulation because strangulation is a very common um method of murder from a serial killer who's like enjoying murdering people is a very intimate way to kill people um but i don't know where that exactly comes from but i don't think it's like i think it's a pretty good guess they didn't have no nobody had bullet holes or anything um so we know it wasn't gunshots what do we know about the victims all of their ages range from 15 to 32 years old besides the fetus who was four months old almost all of them were hispanic and born and raised in new mexico there's only one who was not Hispanic, and that was uh, 15-year-old Selenia Edwards, and she was black. Um, and she was also the only one who was not 
known to the area. She was from out of town and we'll get to her in a bit. All but one were either sex workers or had close ties to sex work and drug drug trafficking or they were drug users. We know that they all led, quote, high-risk lifestyles. Many of them had been missing for years as well. This key factor, the sex work park part, is absolutely the reason that whoever did this was able to get away with 11 murders without anybody suspecting anything. It's been said, and forgive me because I don't remember by who, but it's been said that we don't see as many of the classic serial killer types who go after like co-eds or young families or teenage girls as much anymore as we used to. Not that they don't exist, but it's it's much less common than it used to be. And this is because the theory is that the serial killers have adapted. They've learned that if they want to get away with their crimes, they have to go after victims who are vulnerable and who are less likely to be missed. And that is why we see so many crimes and so many serial killers who target sex workers. Sex workers live high-risk lifestyles. They often don't have a lot of ties to their families. They often are unaccounted for and uh, are able to drop off without speaking to people for a very long time before anybody gets suspicious um and this is obviously super sad and uh it makes it is a huge reason why sex work is such a dangerous job um and you do also see and it's interesting too because you also see sex workers really adapting to that and knowing that they're vulnerable so you see a lot more i think um sex workers like developing buddy systems and um you know being more careful with who they take on as a client etc etc and you also see sex workers using technology a lot more you see a lot of it moving online um you have situ stuff like OnlyFans or like um being a cam girl where like you don't you literally don't have to actually interact with that person um which does help to make it a little bit more safe but you're always going to have people who are doing things on the streets and a lot of people who are sex workers, especially in this case, um, have addiction problems, which I think um, incentivizes people to do more high-risk things because they're more desperate for money so that they can support their drug habits, etc. Very um, unfortunate situation. So... I'm going to go through each of the victims a little bit individually so that we can get to know them and we can see what kind of similarities they had. Clearly, there is a very obvious pattern here. Um, So Jamie Barella and Evelyn Salazar were actually cousins. Um, We do know that they were last seen together at a family gathering. We know that the two of them left And they went to a park on San Mateo and Gibson Boulevard, which is near the airport. And they were never seen after that. Jamie Barella's family were worried immediately. The girls were supposed to come back and Jamie had even left her curling iron on. Now, Jamie, interestingly, appears to be the only one who had no involvement in sex work or drugs. She just happened to be with her cousin, Evelyn, who was. Evelyn was a sex worker and did have ties to drugs. So it was believed that Jamie was only victimized because she was associated with Evelyn. Um, Shitty, shitty and super unfortunate. 
um, Victoria Chavez, she was on probation at the time, not sure for exactly what, but she was involved in drugs and sex work. She had a pretty, she had a bit of a criminal history, um, and she was last seen by her family in 2004, but she was known to take off for long periods of time. Her family knew that she was involved in some, you know, criminal activity and a, a high risk lifestyle. So they knew that there wasn't too much they could do. Um, which is why it took them a whole year from the time that they saw her last to March of 2005 when they actually went and reported her missing. Then we have, and this is in no specific order, by the way. Um, it's it's impossible to tell like who was in there first. The, the only order that you could surmise was like the order in which they were identified, but I'm just putting, I'm just listing them in random order based on my research. Um, so then we have 15-year-old... Selenia Edwards I think that's how you pronounce it and she was the only victim from out of state and she was also the only non-Hispanic victim uh, Selenia was a black woman girl really she was 15 um, in 2003 Edwards was classified as an endangered runaway from Lawton Oklahoma and apparently she was last seen in May of 2004 in Aurora, Colorado with three other girls who were sex workers who went by Lucretia, Ty, and Diamond. And Selenia may have been going under the name Mimi or Chocolate at the time for her work. I was able to find out a bit about Selenia and it's quite, she had quite the tragic short life. Uh, very, very sad. She was born into some pretty awful circumstances um her mother and her father were both in prison uh and that's why she was in foster care at the time um her mother married her father when she was only 14 and her father was 24 and the father had a huge rap sheet that included attempted murder um like prostitution i think he was a pimp as well child endangerment drug use her mother was charged with capital murder when selenia was only two years old and that's why she was in prison um selenia's brother was a pimp um and that's so all of that turmoil and criminal activity landed selenia in foster care um she was in a girl's group home called parker point in lawton ohio when she ran away at age 15 um I don't know much about Parker Point, but doesn't sound like a great place to be. And obviously it was bad enough that she wanted to run away. And that's what she did. And that's, and then her life tragically ended at age 15. Then we have Gina Michelle Valdez, who went by Michelle. And she was discovered, again, as I told you, to be four months pregnant at the time of her death. I also discovered that she was a mother to another child already. Um, just a, another awful tidbit there. Uh, so she left behind a live child. Michelle was described as fun and kind and a very loving person by her family who at some point kind of, I don't know why, but at one point in her life, she did end up getting involved with drugs and then with sex work. Um, and she just seemed to not be able to know how to pull herself out of it. Her family said that she would be doing okay for periods of time, but then she would take off every so often and she would be gone for longer periods of time, but she would always come back until one point she did not come back. And her family reported her missing in February of 2005. But when she actually went missing is unclear. Cinnamon Elks was the oldest victim. I believe she was about 32 years old. And she had a very lengthy criminal history. 
Uh, like most of the victims, she was engaged in sex work and she had issues with drugs. So I think most of her um, criminal history was um, had to do with those things. Cinnamon was always off on her own, according to her family. They kind of accepted that this is the lifestyle that she was living and that she was involved in more criminal activities, etc. And they kind of just let her do her own thing. Um, obviously, they wanted her to not be doing that, but she was doing her. Um, they had not heard from her in a while, which was not uncommon. But in August of 2004, Cinnamon never called her family on her birthday, which was something that she did every year without fail. Um, so that was a big red flag to them. And because of that, they um, decided to report her as missing as they also had not heard from her in a long time. Now, Cinnamon's mother got a lot of pushback from the police about reporting her daughter missing. And they told uh, the family that she was an adult and that she was allowed to not talk to them. And it took multiple months for them to convince the police to officially report her missing. And this is something that we see with a lot of the families when they went to go report their daughters or um, family members missing. I'll talk about that a little bit more after I get through all the girls. Uh, Julia Nito was a single mother, similar story, great girl growing up, but by around age 19, she started to get into drugs. She had one son who her parents were taking care of. She did not have custody of that son, but she visited him often. She brought him gifts and she according to her family, really wanted to be in her son's life and she really wanted to um, get herself off drugs and get to a point in her life where she would be able to take care of her son. And unfortunately, that would never happen. She went missing sometime around August of 2004. And like the others, Julie's disappearance was not taken very seriously for the same reasons. Monica Candelaria, she also had children. She was described as having a great sense of humor. She was a funny girl. She loved her children dearly. Monica went missing and was reported, she went missing, and but she was reported missing in May of 2003. Her family had the same experience with the police. They reported her missing, but not much was done and nobody really seemed to care. Veronica Romero, um, there was almost nothing on the internet about Veronica Romero. She appeared to live a very transient lifestyle and had very few ties to society, apparently. We know that she was reported missing by her family in February of 2004, around Valentine's Day. And we can really only assume that she was probably living a very similar lifestyle as the rest of the victims. Doreen Marquez, she grew up super close by to the area and as a teen, um, she did very well in high school. She was a cheerleader. Um, she was popular and like a regular girl. She had two children. She had a nice house. By all accounts, she was a great mother. She was really into living extravagantly. She wore nice clothes. She got her hair done, her nails done. She like looked after herself very well. She liked to throw big extravagant birthday parties for her children. Um, she appeared to be a very put together woman. But that all kind of changed at around 23 years old when her boyfriend at the time got arrested and thrown in jail. Not sure exactly what for, but this seemed to send her in a like very downward spiral where she ended up getting very heavily involved in drugs. And it's very unclear when she actually went missing, but she was reported missing in December of 2004. Now, because she was associated 
with all the other victims, it's assumed that she was involved in sex work, but there's actually no evidence of this. And her family has been very upset that she's, that it's like kind of been portrayed that she was a sex worker um, when they don't believe that she was. Um, it's definitely possible that she was and they didn't know, but again, no evidence for this. Then we have Virginia Cloven and her family and acquaintances describe her as extremely bubbly, a really fun person, very outgoing. She was very close to her family. The tragic incident in her life that restarted her down a bad path, and like this is a pretty tragic story as well, um, was the murder of one of her brothers. She had two brothers and one of them was murdered and this affected her horribly as it would anybody. Um, and after that, she ended up running away. And then another tragedy hit when her boyfriend at the time, who she was living with, got hit by a car and he was left in a coma for a long time. I don't know whether or not he died, but um, that was yet another tragic incident. Um, and Virginia would end up homeless after this. And she was still in contact with her family, um, but it was confirmed that she was engaged in sex work and she was living on the street. Um, I didn't read anything about drugs, but I would assume that that she was involved in some sort of um, drugs and or alcohol. Um, her family got very worried when they hadn't heard from her in over four months. And so they reported her missing in October of 2004. All of these cases, I think it's safe to say that the families or whoever went to go report them missing, it wasn't taken, they felt that, they, that it wasn't taken too seriously. Now there was a woman who was working in the missing persons department who had been collecting their names and had been noticing a pattern but didn't really do much about it. I think um, it's very easy to say like, oh, they didn't care. They didn't, whatever. They didn't look into this. And I think that there's definitely stuff um, that the police can do. And they, they, they definitely could have gone and been interviewing other sex workers in the area and trying to, you know, piece these things together. Absolutely. But I think it's also important to recognize when people go missing um, who do li live these transient lifestyles, often it is the case that they have just moved on and went to another town or whatever and have just exited the situation of their own volition. That's definitely the, the case often. But two, it is much more difficult to look into a missing person um, when somebody is like living on the street and doesn't have strong familial ties um, and what have you. Oftentimes, police are not trusted among people who are involved in criminal activity. All of these girls, with the exception of Jamie Barella, seem to have been involved in criminal activity. So it's a lot, it's like, it's way harder to go and interview people who are engaging in criminal activities because they're not going to trust the police as much. Um, I'm not saying that it's okay to that that the they shouldn't the, the police did a great job and that like we shouldn't blame them absolutely not i think there are things that can be done um but when like a child from a middle class family goes missing like there's a million people you can interview and everybody's going to be um helpful in that situation when a sex worker goes missing and you have to go ask a bunch of drug addicts and other sex workers what happened it's it's not it's not nearly as uh as simple to do. As I said, many of the families had went to the police and they felt that they were not being taken seriously. And I think that's true. Um, 
And there were a number of family members who had claimed that they had been contacted by an anonymous person, either on the phone or otherwise, or through rumors, um, who were told that their daughter or family member or, you know, the victim that they were related to um, had been killed. Um, there was a couple family members who were told that their daughter had been stabbed multiple times. I think there was at least one case where someone was told that their daughter was beheaded. Um, and uh, they brought this information to the police and they feel that they weren't taken seriously or that this didn't get looked into. I don't know if it that it didn't get looked into or if they just were not able to corroborate or find the source of these allegations. Um, as I said, there were like anonymous phone calls or rumors. So those things are obviously very hard to track down, but it is noted. And um, it sounds like these are, it, it's possible that this was true and it's possible that this was the murderer. At first, when the mass grave was found, this case did receive a lot of media attention. This was possibly the biggest serial killer case or the biggest mass murder gravesite, whatever, that Albuquerque had ever seen. Horrific. Um, so it was a big deal and people were terrified. Now, I do think that it is the case that after um, the bodies were identified and after we discovered who the victims were, the media attention and like the general care began to wane. I think this is something we see often and I think it's generally happens for two main reasons. One, it's very unfortunate, but it's true that people just see uh, the lives of sex workers or drug addicts as inherently less valuable. Um, we don't often see the media humanizing people with criminal pasts and who, who lead high-risk lifestyles. And that's very sad because all of these women... All of these women's ha these women had families. All of them had been reported missing. All a lot of them had children. Um, it's these people did have value, and um, I think, as we see with a lot of these cases, a lot of these women were young. All of them had the chance to to like you know sort themselves out and become contributing members of society. And even if they didn't, their lives still mattered to other people. So it's very unfortunate when when we see this type of thing. Um, but second of all, um, I think it's also the case that if you find out that there's a serial killer on the loose who's targeting women, or even say, for example, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was targeting young college-age girls, all of whom had brown hair, and most of them parted down the middle, like, moi. Um, and that's terrifying, okay? Everybody knows a woman everybody is, or is a woman or probably knows somebody whose daughter is in college or you have a daughter in college, okay? That's a lot. It's a huge um, population, um, not only of that victim type, but of people who know and care about people in that victim type. Um, when we find out that a serial killer is targeting some, like 100% of their victims are sex workers, you can pretty safely assume that if you are not a sex worker and you don't know any sex workers, you probably don't have anything to worry about. Um, and this, it's also super unfortunate. Um, it's obviously important to care about people's safety and being a sex worker does not at all mean that you deserve to be victimized. But the second reason, if we're being honest, is just a little bit more pragmatic and it's a part of human nature. And I hope I don't come off as too harsh here or that I don't care because I absolutely do. I'm, you know, spend a 
a, a week looking into this case and giving a shit. But people only have the capacity to care and worry about so much in their lives. If you pay attention to the news media at all, there's a constant stream of things that we are told to be terrified of and to worry about on a daily basis. And I'm sure if we're being honest, when you hear that a group of people are being targeted, it's a pretty big relief when you find out that you are not a part of that group and nobody in your close circle is also a part of that group. Um, and do I... Does this mean that we should blame the media for not talking about the story enough? I mean, maybe. But maybe if people cared more, the media would push the story more. Maybe if the media kept up with the story more, it would help people to care more. I don't say this to blame people. I don't even, it's not even really an answer. It's just me thinking about it. But I just see a lot of people talk about um, sex worker victims of serial killers and everyone will say no one cared because they were sex workers and blah 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 and I've, I, I very seldom see people kind of take that thought farther and try to understand why and examine the dynamics that create this type of apathy including aspects that might be less nefarious you know um, the Atlanta child murders I just did and like 100% of the victims were black I'm sure that if you were not black and living in the area, like I'm sure maybe you knew people who were, so like you cared in that way. Um, and maybe this is a bad example because <laughs> I think there was a lot of like racism and awful shitty behavior in that case. But like if you were not, if you were like a white or Chinese family, like you didn't have to worry about your kids because that serial killer was not going after, the serial killer was going after young black boys. Um, and that's, you know, that's the same with any serial killer when you find out their target demographic. And I think it's, I think if we're being honest as humans, like we're worried about ourselves, we're worried about our families. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's like people don't care, but it's like, there's a million things to worry about every day. Are you going to worry about something that you know is not going to affect you? No. The police, however, are a whole different story, and I would hope that they would care about victims equally. We know this is not the case. In Albuquerque, it feels like when all of these women were reported missing, nothing much was done. But when they were all found together and it was suspected that a serial killer was responsible, I got the vibe from my research that it was quite the investigation. Um, I can't say the same for... Um, when they first started going missing, I think there was a lot more apathy. Um, but when they were all found, it was like, fuck... Um, but that, I think, more had to do with the fact that they believed it was a serial killer. Now, the FBI did get involved in this case. They created suspect profiles. They brought in profilers. They knocked on doors. They spoke with families. They dug in deep. Um, they also had some anthropologists get involved, and they examined the bones earlier on to try to identify the victims faster. Um, but I don't believe they were successful with this. The Arizona PD really did use all of the resources at their disposal to try to find this guy. It was huge, and it was very likely the work of a serial killer, they thought. They had a 40-person task force to deal with just this case. Um, they got in touch with a bunch of the surrounding states, including Texas, Arizona, and the rest of New Mexico, to try to connect this case with other similar cases. There were a lot of other missing women who they tried to connect to their guy, but pretty much all of this turned out to be fruitless. Um, sorry if you can hear my baby, I'm, I can't do much about it. Anyway, they're able to establish a lot of ties between the victims and, um, between their families. Um, 
there was a lot of family members who knew each other and there were even some victims who had connections but nothing big and investigators really believe that this had more to do with all the victims coming from the same area and working in the same area and um um being involved in like criminal activity in albuquerque albuquerque is still it's not a big place um so the fact that there were a lot of ties between the victims um just wasn't really a big clue unfortunately um as all of them mostly all of them were sex workers and dry addicts so they kind of all hung out at the same place and there was it was this one place called the war zone which was a spot in albuquerque that had a high level of criminal activity so investigators did their best to establish timelines for each victim um, and try to establish when their last sightings were um, again as we know from what I said previously, that was a very hard task to complete and was not, you know, you weren't able to establish somebody's exact whereabouts as much as you could. Uh, um, somebody living a less, um, a more traditional lifestyle, um, but they did do their best to do that. Um, investigators were also able to look at satellite images of the area and they were able to see when the soil had been disturbed. Um, so they did have some idea of when the bodies were buried and they were also able to find or, or see tire tracks that had led out to those areas. So it, it's like kind of disturbing to see, like um, you see the tire tracks, they never were able to get photos of the car that drove out or anybody in the area. Um, unfortunately, the satellite pictures, I guess these satellite images are just, you know, taken at certain times um and so you were able to see that somebody was driving out there and burying bodies there as we would obviously imagine um but none of the tracks were present at the time that they discovered the bodies and in terms of evidence that's pretty much all they have the investigation remains open they have one person on the case and his name is mark morani he's interviewed over 200 women um, but pretty much has nothing uh, no witnesses have come forward zero forensics were found at the scene there's two people that um are believed to be suspects that we have quite a bit of information on and who look pretty good for it to be honest um so i'll go through what we have on these two individuals um right now so the first is a man named joseph blay and joseph was in prison when the bodies were found and i'll tell you why um but it was his ex-wife who actually got in touch with the police and she told the police that her daughter had found some women's clothing and jewelry in their home um suggesting that he had taken these items and kept them as trophies which we know is something that many serial killers do his ex-wife told authorities that he loved sex workers not he didn't love sex workers but he um solicited prostitution he bought sex often from women um but at the same time, he also constantly ranted and raved about how much he hated them all the time. She also told authorities that Joseph used to dump trash in the area that the bodies were found in. Now, Joseph was known to police. He was well known to police. 
Blay had had almost 140 interactions with police between 1990 and 2009. He seemed to have been involved in the drug scene in Albuquerque and frequented the war zone, which is where all the women were working. In 2003, Joseph was arrested for exposing himself to a woman. And during that arrest, police found electrical tape and rope in his car. It was also alleged by the police that they saw him stalking sex workers during and after the time of his murders, particularly in this war zone area that all the girls were working in. Now, Joseph was arrested on numerous occasions for breaking into women's houses and stealing their underwear. Disgusting. Remind us of anybody that we know, Russell Williams? Um, in 2008, Joseph was actually arrested for attacking one of his own family members. And during this arrest is where things got real for Joseph, because this uh, instance led uh, authorities to take his DNA and enter it into their database, which we call CODIS. And immediately there was one match to another crime and a match or a, a possible match to a number of unsolved crimes. It turns out that in the 80s, Joseph had been prowling a neighborhood, breaking and entering into homes, and raping teenage girls at knife point. This previously unsolved rape spree had nicknamed the suspect the mid-school molester, and it turned out that Joseph was the MSM. This discovery earned him a 90-year prison sentence in 2015. Now, all of that is interesting, but unless there is anything tying him specifically to the murders, for example, he had some clothing and jewelry that we knew belonged to one of the victims, it really is not saying much. Now, apparently, there was a prison cellmate that Joseph had uh, spoken to in prison, who this prison a uh, cellmate of his said that Joseph admitted to knowing some of the murdered women and also claimed that he once hit one of them because he said that she was trying to rob him. Again, this is an inmate, so it's an it's inherently unreliable uh, testimony or, or witness statement um, and also not proof of a murder. Now, there was one piece of evidence that did seem to pretty conclusively uh, connect Joseph with the victims. So when the police were excavating the bodies, they took like all the evidence that they could find from the scene, different garbage and whatever else they found within the gravesite. So along with that evidence, they found a tag that had been previously attached to a tree that was purchased at a local nursery. Um, and that was um, buried very far in the ground with the victims. Now, Joseph had been known to frequent the nursery that this tree had come from. And weirdly, he had only purchased from the nursery between 2003 and 2005, which is when all the victims seem to have gone missing. The authorities were able to confirm that the tag was from a tree that Joseph had purchased. Now, Joseph Blay definitely could have had something to do with it. And he, it's, he seems like a shady character, absolutely. Um, but that was the biggest real piece of evidence tying Joseph to the murders. And I have to say, if we recall from what I just said at the beginning, his ex-wife said that he used to dump trash in the area. So I think a lot of people put this, um, put a lot into this tag, um, but it seems like it's very possible that he just dumped trash there and that was part of the trash and it got mixed in, especially since we know that the developer had been mixing the soil and you know, kind of messing with the ground. 
so another popular suspect is a man named Lorenzo Montoya. And Lorenzo was employed at a printing company. And he was very similar to Joseph in that he often purchased sex workers. He purchased their services, I guess is how you should say it. Um, and he was known around the drug and prostitution scene to pick up sex workers. And he had been caught a number of times assaulting them. So Lorenzo had a very extensive history of violence against women. Documented violence against women. In 1998, he was arrested for strangling a sex worker who he'd taken to a secluded place in the woods. He'd solicited her for sex. And then he drove her out to the secluded place and it was believed that he planned to murder her um he assaulted her and when the police arrived and i don't i don't know how she was able to get the police um i think they might have just happened to have been driving by um but when they kind of like rescued her from the situation they found that he only had two dollars in his pocket at the time so we know that he had no intention of paying her um and it looked like he wanted to murder her because he was assaulting her and strangling her um, now the case went on to be dismissed, so Lorenzo just continued to do his thing. Um, an ex-girlfriend of Montoya's also claimed that he had once threatened to kill her and bury her in lime after he beat her. There are many instances of ex-girlfriends of Lorenzo and family members and acquaintances talking about his history of violence against women, um, his threats to them, and his extensive, uh, I guess, purchasing and abuse of sex workers. So Montoya is now dead. And the incident that led to his death took place in 2006, which interestingly is right after the girls who wound up in the gravesite stopped going missing. Um, so he had found a woman, a sex worker online and invited him, invited her to his mobile home. And this was 19 year old Sherika Hill. Now during their meetup, Montoya and Sherika, I guess, engaged in sex. Like, some people say it was rape, but he, like that was the purpose of her going there, so perhaps it was consensual, who knows. Um, but then he strangled Sherika to death. Now, Sherika's pimp, and some people refer to him as a boyfriend, others a pimp, so, you know, maybe he was both. Um, unbeknownst to, to Lorenzo, this man, Frederick Williams, was actually outside in his car waiting for Sherika. Um, and he felt that things were taking much longer than they should have. So he approached the home to check on the situation. And it just so happened that Frederick walked up to Lorenzo's car just as he was trying to load Sherika's dead body into the trunk. When Frederick saw this, he shot Lorenzo to death. When the police found Sherika, they found her to be bound by the ankles, wrists, and knees with duct tape and cords. And the murder was later ruled as self-defense. Yes, it's nice that that scummy murderer is no longer living among us. However, now that he's dead, there is little that can be done to verify whether or not Lorenzo had anything to do with our murders. Was Sherika meant to end up in the ground like the rest of the victims? It's very possible, but it's really difficult to determine now. There was absolutely no DNA or anything conclusive that links him. However, there is some pretty compelling and chilling circumstantial evidence. First of all, he lived very close to the burial site. 
And apparently, in some of the satellite photos that they have of the tire tracks, it appears that sometimes they actually lead pretty much to and from his home. Second, when the police searched his home, they found a bunch of porn and video equipment. They found multiple videos that were made presumably uh, with other sex workers, many of who to this day remain unidentified. But after the fact, the police ended up releasing a portion of one of these tapes, and it seemed to be a recording of an encounter that he had with a sex worker. However, the video faces the wall, so you don't see anybody and you don't see what they're doing, but it seems to be at the very end, presumably after the sexual encounter occurred. And we only have the bit from the end, um, no talking, and as I said, it the, the camera seems to be facing the wall, but the only sound that is believed to be heard is what sounds like duct tape or some sort of tape and the rustling of a plastic bag, something kind of like a trash bag. Now, what's kind of compelling about this and what, you know, which seems super murdery is that they found Sherika when she was, and she was bound with duct tape um, and all of her belongings were put inside of a trash bag. Um, So I guess what people assume is that this is what he had done to somebody else previously, um, which suggests that maybe he was a serial killer and probably the killer that we are dealing with. Um, So here's that video. Now, I believe that that was all of the video that was released. We didn't see any of the other parts of the video. Um, and again, it's not conclusive. Maybe he was wrapping Christmas presents for all we know. Um, but it it is quite eerie. And we know that he murdered one sex worker, tied her up, put her stuff in a plastic bag, and was going to get in his truck, which not super conclusively but looks like it had driven to the dump site previously i mean come on after lorenzo died the west mensa west mesa bone collector stopped killing at and around this time um it's very possible a number of things could have happened he could have moved he could uh, um he could have been put in jail like joseph he could have died like lorenzo we just don't know um and to this day we don't have any conclusive idea of who the West Mesa bone collector is. My money is on Lorenzo. He seems like the most likely suspect to me. But again, this is all alleged. This is all internet sleuthage. They still have that one person on the case and it doesn't look good, specifically because there is no DNA evidence. Hopefully maybe technology will come to a point where you can get good DNA evidence from no because even any DNA evidence would have been on the skin of the girls and all that skin is now gone now there's a few other characters who have been uh suspects in the past or that people have found them to be a little bit shady or you know 
people are interested in for this case but i think that those two are definitely the most compelling so i don't really see a reason to start going into all these other people and uh you know it's not it's not it's not small to accuse somebody of being a serial killer uh so i don't think you know you should be too willy-nilly <laughs> when talking about potential suspects <laughs> tell me what you think did i get my shit together enough did this like did this narrative even come into uh did this narrative even come together for you do you know what i was talking about um please let me know i know there's a lot online about this case and a lot of uh theories and you know the like so if there's something that i missed please let me know put it in the comments and also give me your thoughts on the casey anthony thing because fuck um, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Who's Knocking Podcast, Twitter at Who's Knocking Pod, sign up for my email at grimweekly.com, or send me an email at hello at Who's Knocking Podcast.com. I'm looking forward to my much needed vacation. And please stay safe because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.